What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. It is Friday, October 27th. It's been a while since we've done a town hall episode of The Town, our mailbag episode. So we put out a tweet or an X or whatever you call it yesterday. And a bunch of people asked questions. Greg, how many questions did we get? Probably over 100 questions, tweets and emails. So right. uh, we're not answering 100 questions today, but we will try to answer a few. Craig has gone through with his very discerning eye and selected some of the good ones. Let's get right into it. All right. I'm going to start with a question that we received from probably a dozen people. Why didn't Hassan Minaj get the Daily Show job? That's an interesting one because I've actually done a lot of reporting on this subject. Most people know, I think, that the New Yorker published a big story last month where it was revealed that a number of the anecdotes that he's used in his act have, he called it emotional truth, but were not exactly factually accurate, which to me, I don't really care about that in my stand-up comedy. I don't really fact check the stand-ups that I see and that I enjoy. But this is a guy who was in line for The Daily Show. And that is a quasi-news entertainment comedy program. And when Paramount Global and Chris McCarthy, who runs that division, saw that story and they knew it was coming, they freaked out. They don't want to give the show to a guy So he was that, in line to get the job. Not just in line. I mean, my reporting is that it was basically a done deal. The Hassan Minaj side, they thought the deal was closed. They'd agreed to all the financial terms. It hadn't been reported in the press yet that he got it. It was just a front runner. But that they thought it was closed. The Paramount side said, eh, not really closed, subject to a background check, subject to a number of different checks that they do for high-profile employees. And they essentially sat on the announcement during the strikes this summer, and disaster happened. This story came out, and he lost a job. So he's really upset. He put out a video yesterday where he refutes, you know, 20 minutes. He refutes a lot of the claims in the stories. He provides materials that he says he gave to the New Yorker and the New Yorker did not use. The New Yorker then responded to him and said essentially that he's admitting he fabricated certain parts of his act. They say that, you know, his perspective was used in the piece and a number of the people that he has told anecdotes about in his act were quoted in the story and referenced in the story and they stand by it. 
So it's a tough situation. I don't see Paramount revisiting Hassan Minaj now that he has officially responded. I think he waited to do that. He probably should have done it right after the story dropped. But he waited, I think, because he thought he might be able to still get the Daily Show job. And it became clear over the last week or two that that was not happening, which is why I think he has chosen to go public. Also, I think it was supposed to happen last week and they delayed it for the Israel stuff. Didn't want it to come right on top of that. And I think now he is targeting not the Daily Show job. He's targeting the New Yorker. He -hmm. thinks he might be able to perhaps sue them, perhaps get a settlement from them. I don't think that's going to happen. The New Yorker doesn't typically do that. I think his better bet is to go after Paramount Global and try to argue that they had a closed deal and he didn't do anything wrong. This was all stuff that was sort of out there. That's a tougher argument because most of these deals, when they are papered, they have a morals clause in them. And you can be fired if you bring ill repute upon the network or if you have a personal scandal. I do think litigators will get involved in this one because he's going to want to be paid something for being told to go away, essentially. And Paramount's not going to want to pay him. So it'll probably be handled quietly. But if this, if there's a filing, if he sues, I would not be surprised. Okay, next question here is from Kirby. Kirby asks, if sag after solidifies a deal in the next few weeks, do you think any productions will ramp up through the holidays despite that being a time Hollywood traditionally shuts down? The short answer, I think, is no. The breaks over the holidays are contractual. You know, they're contractually mandated. And to get around that, you'd have to go back into these deals and get some sort of concession. That's why the closer we get to Thanksgiving, the more these productions are just punting. They're saying, okay, it's not worth it for us to start up in mid-December and then just have to shut down again. Best case scenario, there's a deal in the next week or two with SAG, which is a best case scenario. We have no indication that that's actually close to happening. But if it does, they will have choices to make. Maybe they could get up and start production right around Thanksgiving or beginning of December because these deals have to be ratified. They have to like give the back-to-work order. I don't see it for most productions. I think they're going to just skip the holidays and come back in January. And what about IATSE? She also follows up about if you have any thoughts on IATSE's position. Yeah, I mean, honestly, IATSE, which is the the below-the-line Guild. They're the people that are not negotiating right now. Their negotiation, I believe, is next year. They are really getting screwed in all of this because they are put out of work. They are not having any revenue because there's no production. And they're not getting the benefit of these deals that these guilds are striking for. Now, the theory, the thinking is that because of the solidarity, these above the line guilds, SAG, DGA, Writers Guild, that they will be in solidarity with Viazzi when they come to negotiating their deal. But I just don't know what the appetite is going to be next year to revisit all this stuff all over again. What does that mean in solidarity? Like SAG is going to hold out working until the IATSE deal is signed? No, no, no. They can't do that. Once you sign a deal, you're not allowed to go out on strike with another deal. You're just saying they will support them in any way they can. Exactly. Yeah, whatever they can do, they will support them. Got it. And, you know, I just feel like they're getting the short end of the stick. And it's really hurting. I mean, there was a rally yesterday in downtown LA where a lot of IATSE members and other guilds were pushing for greater assistance for unemployed people because of how many people are hurting. I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't know what the appetite is for that. There was a statewide measure that would have allowed 
striking people to get unemployment benefits while they are striking. And that was vetoed by the governor, Gavin Newsom. Mm. And they're just like, they're in a really tough spot. I mean, that's the thing that people don't realize if they're not in LA is that both these strikes have had pretty significant fallout for the rest of the economy. I mean, it was a $5 billion loss of economic activity that was estimated, that was estimated during the summer. I think it's gotten way worse. I, whenever I go to restaurants and everything, I talk to the maitre d's that serve the Hollywood crowd. They always say like, God, this has got to end. Like it's just hurting businesses across the board. So the below the line workers, if they strike, if IATSE strikes, they will not be able to get unemployment. Not currently. No. I mean, there are strike funds and other things that are often set up. I don't know the details of those, but currently they are not. There's only a couple states where you get unemployment if you are on strike. I believe New York is one of them. Where do you land on that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it sort of depends on what your position on organized labor is. I mean, it seems a little weird to me to have the state essentially incentivize going on strike because you're going to get paid an unemployment benefit if you are on strike. So it might set up a situation where it, it kind of encourages strikes. But I also see the other side where sometimes the only way to raise wages and benefits is to threaten a strike and you have more leverage with the employers if they know that there is a safety right. net for people yeah. who are on strike. So next time these actor-writer deals come up in three years, the studios would know, okay, we got to be serious and pay them or else they can go on strike and get unemployment. So I don't know. I mean, it's tough, though, because if it exacerbates the strikes, it goes on longer and hurts more people, including those who are not unemployed, who are just making less money. So it's a, it's a complicated issue. All right. So sticking in the strike world, but lightening the mood a little bit, Jonah asks, what is the weirdest moment you've heard about with execs in the room during the WGA or SAG negotiations? And they suggest, you know, was Zaz pulling out a mini bottle of Dom? He wants to know any anecdotes that you've heard from, from the inside. So the funniest thing, I guess it's funny. I don't know. It depends where you stand on emotional support dolls. But Fran Drescher... Dolls? Emotional yeah. support dolls? I thought you were yes. going to say dogs. No, a doll. Fran Drescher, the president of SAG-AFTRA, has a heart-shaped stuffed animal that is like an emotional support tool. And she brings it to the negotiations. <laughs> and this thing, this thing got a profile in Variety. It's sort of like the talk of Twitter. It is like a little pink or white heart shaped thing with a smiley face and legs on it. We don't know that it's an emotional support stuffy. We It could just be like a bargaining tactic, like, you know, have a heart, you know, side with the workers type thing. But it's like a Furby. I believe reports are that it is, it is not a Furby. Oh, it is not a Furby. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but it, is, it is Furby adjacent? I don't know. Sure. It looks like a Furby. It's in the Furby universe. And it just sits on the desk during negotiations and stares at the other side? Wait, apparently she said during a negotiation that my Furby is watching you. She said that to the CEOs. Oh, okay. Well, but according to several other sources, this is a Variety story. I'm glad Variety is really on the, the cutting variety edge. Variety said story. it is not a Furby, contrary to early rumors. Oh, interesting. Okay. This is what's really important. It's manufactured by Jelly Cat, a niche toy brand that caters to toddlers in high-end department stores. So it's a fancy Furby. Okay. Well, I'm excited for 
the Furby movie coming out. Yeah, I don't know. The other stuff, like, you know, I've heard that there's a lot of histrionics going on in the room where, you know, Fran and, and Duncan, the other SAG lead negotiator, are sort of speechifying and giving lectures to the studios. The writer's negotiation was apparently very contentious. Like, they were just, like, straight-up assholes to the studio. <laughs> like, sometimes, like, not even acknowledging them in the room or, like, not, you know, m- making pleasantries. Listen, everybody has their own style. What about from the studio side? Right now, you're only you're only taking shots at the writers. I, mean, and the the, I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe they are just boring in the room. You hear these stories about how they've like stormed out of the room. I don't think that's true. I've said that on the show before. You know, they had Brian Lord, one of the heads of CAA, come in on behalf of the actors and like try to explain stuff to the studio heads. And I think they were kind of rolling their eyes. They're like, "What? Like we don't we don't need to be agented right now." But I don't know. I feel like. After the settlement is done, we'll start to hear stories of some of the things that went on and stuff tends to trickle out. But so far, I'd say that the Fran Drescher stuffy is the star (laughs) of the strike so far in the room. All right, let's pivot to your favorite company, Disney. Uh, We got a question from Pal who asks, why is Disney trying to make Disney Plus their main service? It seems like that should be Hulu and Disney Plus could be the add-on inside of it like how ESPN Plus operates now. What do you think about that? I mean, Disney Plus has more users. Is it that simple? Well, okay, it's not just that, but think about branding. Right. Disney is one of the most recognizable brands in the world. Why wouldn't you leverage that? Disney is a consumer brand. I mean, that's the whole value that it has, that you know, Paramount has Paramount Plus, but Paramount was not a consumer brand. I mean, most people have heard of it, but it was not something that you associated with a particular style of content. Disney is the brand. Now, that is limiting to a certain extent because, as Bob Iger has said, Disney means something to the consumer and it means typically family-oriented entertainment. But I think that brand can expand. And if Disney Plus has a Hulu tile on it or outside of this country, a star tile or whatever, that people will accept that. Disney can have an ESPN tile and people will accept that. But Disney is the main brand. The other thing with Hulu is that it's only in the US. Disney wants to have a global service. So yeah, maybe the tile in the US will be Hulu. But I don't think they would ever change the entire service to Hulu when the rest of the world doesn't have that. Disney yeah, is the brand. I agree. Okay, the next question here is from Liam. Liam asks, how do movie subscription passes contribute to box offices? Pretty easy answer. When you buy a AMC Stubbs pass or whatever, and you go to a movie, the value of your ticket is paid to the studio. It's just like you bought a regular ticket. So, you know, if the, normally it's about a 50-50 split, sometimes higher for the studio on opening weekend. But if you pay a $20 movie ticket, typically at an AMC, but you've got a Stubbs pass, $10 will still go to the studio for whatever movie you're going to see. That's why the real value for AMC on these passes is if you don't go to the movies. It's like a gym. They want you to sign up and pay your monthly subscription and then not go to the movie because they're going to have to pay it out if you go. Obviously, they make money on you on concessions and other things, but that's where they're they're at. And it's also why some of these subscription services want to get to a certain amount of scale. If MoviePass, which is just relaunch, if they can get to a certain number of users and a certain number of tickets bought, they can go into the studios and to the exhibitors and renegotiate and negotiate better terms for themselves that will allow them to pay less than what they currently do. 
And that's what the goal is to get to a certain, you know, a certain scale where they have power. And I don't think MoviePass is quite there yet. But yeah, the studios still make money on this. Yeah, 2018 was the best movie year of my life because I was paying like $9 a month for MoviePass and going to probably five movies a month. And shocker, that didn't make economic sense for anyone <laughs> it was involved. the best. I was at the Grove like every other day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. We're, wait, we're actually paying the studios for all these movies? I know the studios loved it. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Okay, next question here is from Joe Blow. Oh, Mr. Blow, I'm a fan. Yes, they ask, does the Microsoft Activision deal going through make consolidation in the entertainment industry more likely or... Will they be hesitant because of the time, energy, and hurdles you had to get through for the deal to, to, to go through? I think it actually helps. The fact that the Justice Department and the FTC has, have now pretty s- consistently lost in these cases, I think it does make a, people a little bolder in taking them on. That doesn't mean that we're going to all of a sudden see you know, a wave of corporate consolidation in the wake of this. There are other factors, I think, that are hindering the deal appetite right now, namely interest rates and kind of the the end of the cheap money era. The government did get a big win in this Penguin Random House proposed merger with Simon & Schuster a couple of years ago, actually last year. A federal judge agreed with the Justice Department that combining two of the biggest publishers would lessen competition for the top books. And it was just a ruling. It was not a trial. But that ruling was enough to jettison that deal. And they abandoned it. And ultimately, they found another buyer for the publisher. But that's a win. Most of these big cases like Time Warner and, and AT&T, like you know, Activision and Microsoft now, like these big antitrust cases haven't really gone anywhere. So I think that's, that says something. Okay, this question is from Scott. He asks, if you had $7 billion, would you buy CAA or literally anything else in the world? <laughs> uh, I, I, $7 billion. Don't think a talent agency would be on my list. I've written about this in my Puck newsletter. It's going to be a challenging next few years for the talent agencies. We've said this on the show. I, did, I think I sold. Didn't I sell? They were one of my sales at the live pod. Yeah, they were, yeah. I know he's joking, but like, I can think of a lot of things I'd want to buy for $7 billion. You know what I do? I give a couple billion dollars to Martin Scorsese just to let him make that shipwreck movie that he wants to make based on the David Grand book. He can make it five hours long. Well, there is a question here. It would cost a billion dollars. We would see every (laughs) aspect of every 18th century 
ship that sailed into America. Uh, you know, a lot of people had a bone to pick with you. People were asking what Scorsese did to hurt you after your comments last week about Killers <laughs> of the Flower Moon. Nothing. I just, listen, I, I'm a fan of his work. I think he's one of our greatest living directors. I think he spends too much on his movies and his people that back his movies typically lose money. And that, from a business perspective, is wrong. But more power to him. It's the business angle that bothers you. Yeah, of course. It's just bad business. But who cares? I mean, who cares if Apple's paying a million dollars? This is a Why? business show. This, listen, if, you, if you're going to make a three and a half hour movie yeah. and spend $200 million on it, there better be some blue people in it or a freaking talking whale or things that are going to hold my attention and make a, a three and a half hour <laughs> sit Come feel on. like an adventure. You need a blue, you'd rather have a blue whale three and a half hour movie than Robert De Niro, Leo DiCaprio, and Martin Scorsese making a movie. Yeah, we can make a fat Leo joke right now if we want, but we're not going to. Yes, <laughs> I would, I would, I want Leo in two hour, two and a half hour increments. I do not want him in three and a half hours. Or, you know what, guys? Just make a TV show. You shouldn't be ashamed. I, I couldn't disagree more. I you don't should want. should not be ashamed no. of making a four episode limited series called Killers of the Flower Moon and everybody would watch it. And people would actually subscribe to Apple TV Plus to watch that. Now they're going to lose money in theaters. They got to pay Paramount to distribute the movie. They've got to do a whole marketing campaign. And it's just not worth it. The last thing we need is more limited series. And the, we need more movies that will get people to go sit down in theaters. I, I agree it's too long. I agree it's too long. Directed by Martin Scorsese starring Leo DiCaprio. That's a distinguisher. Well, he's not, Leo's not going to do that. Listen, make, make the wager, make the next shipwreck movie. You know what he should do? You know, he should de-age everyone. Have it star Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro as like 18th century, you know, mutinied sailors. And you can de-age them through the whole process. Add a couple hundred million dollars onto the cost. These are all just the incorrect takes. <laughs> all right, more. Questions we're not answering. Somebody asked, can I power rank my top three Anna Darmus performances? I'm not doing that. Oh! Nor I'm do I have an opinion on that. Darmus. No, she's not my favorite. I don't have an opinion on that. I, wait, I, I wait. probably okay. Could. So, can one of her best performances be in a paparazzi video of her at Dunkin' Donuts with Ben Affleck? Sure, that's that's great. Actually, I've it's, it's like more that in the I've Bond movie. <laughs> yeah, it's more likely I've seen that than three performances of hers. To be honest, like I've seen Knives Out. I, I can't name a ton of in a dark. I never saw Blonde. Oh, Blonde. Yeah, she's. I mean, obviously, she got the Oscar nomination for Blonde. She's in Deep Water, that movie with Ben Affleck that nobody right, saw. Nobody saw. She's in the Bond movie. She's in that segment, the sequence of the Bond, the most recent Bond movie where they go to Mexico for some reason. I saw 15 minutes of Ghosted and turned that off. Oh, yeah. I fell asleep to that. That was yeah. bad. I, I think an AI bot wrote that script. All right. Before we go here, we have to do a call sheet to predict what's going to happen with Five Nights at Freddy's. It opened to 10 million in previews. What do you think? Yeah, that is a interesting one because you took the under in your newsletter i did i took the under the the tracking's at about low 50s let's say 52 53 which is incredibly high for a movie like this i mean universal has two big horror movies for this month they have the exorcist which is a movie that they paid 400 million dollars for the rights to and they put blumhouse on it david gordon green the same halloween team and it totally flopped not a great result there. They had this other horror movie, Five Nights at Freddy's, which was also produced by Blumhouse, but the creator of the game franchise was a little bit more involved in this one, and the economics were not as good for Universal, and Blumhouse had to kind of deal with a partner on it. So they gave it a release date on Halloween weekend, which is traditionally not as good 
of a release date as earlier in the month because obviously you have more weekends before Halloween. You don't think with Halloween being on Tuesday that this is kind of an advantageous weekend? Maybe. I mean, Halloween weekend, typically there are parties and, you know, other things that you're competing with. But the fact that it's Tuesday this year, maybe this weekend is a little bit freer for people and it's a better weekend. Um, It's also day and date on Peacock, which is another factor that is it's very surprising to me that the tracking is this high when the 28 million people in the U.S. that can watch it on Peacock um, might just do that instead of theaters. But it's it's crazy. The 10 million uh, in previews on Thursday night, this one was going to be front-loaded because fans of the game bought tickets on pre-sales and wanted to see it and have been asking online for years for a Five Nights at Freddy movie. The reviews have been terrible, like god-awful, even for horror. And horror fans are not really loving it when they tweet about it or that I've seen. So I think this movie is going to kind of fall off a cliff. But given that number, I am doing something I don't think I've ever done. I'm changing my prediction from ah. my newsletter to the podcast. And I'm going to take the over on low 50s. Well, how nice. How easy for you. I, 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 I wish no, this I could. This is legitimate. I can do this. This is new information that I did not have. The new before. information is that the box office opened and the movie is performing well. So you're ch- that's like me betting, a, like, like saying that I predicted a team was going to win a game after the first quarter. Well, if the betting was offered after the first quarter, sure. You can well, do betting, that. The, you no, can always like bet, but the lines on the, will change. No, this is like betting on the 49ers after you hear that Christian McCaffrey is injured. That is no. new information that has been brought to light. No, 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 no. It would be like if Christian McCaffrey got hurt at the end of the first quarter, and then you were like, you know what? I actually think the Niners are going to lose now. All right, well, maybe if there's a sports book that would take that bet, I would do it. So I'm doing, this is, we make the rules here. So I am allowed to change my bet from the newsletter, and I am okay. now taking the over on low 50s based on the previews, and it'll still fall off a cliff. I believe Halloween, What you had those numbers, right, on what Halloween did? Halloween opened to 7.5 million in previews. In previews. And, and it did 76 million. Okay, so that's Halloween. That's Jamie Lee Curtis. That's a beloved franchise. Strong name recognition, back. yeah. Right, yes. So it's not going to do that. But I do think this is going to get to high 50s, low 60s based on that number and then fall off a complete cliff after Halloween. It's a good concept, haunted Chuck E. Cheese. I do, I do think that's not bad. It is, but PM. apparently it's like not that. It's like about the backstory of Josh Hutcherson's character, which like I haven't seen it. I, I shouldn't be opining, but I have heard that it's not very well executed. And again, this was not a total Blumhouse movie. They had a partner on this one, and they had to kind of adhere to what the partner wanted. I bet on the sequel, the inevitable sequel, they will probably have more control. And I bet they will probably not do it day and date on Peacock if they think that they can get a real audience here um, for opening weekend. Or maybe they'll just stick with the hits. If they can get $60 million and it being on Peacock, more power to them. I'm always fascinated in trailers when it says like from the producers that that gave you blank, like which movie they decide to, to tell you. Like, yeah, that's it, all the marketing from yeah. a producer of X movie that might make you think that this movie is like that movie. Yes, and it was Megan. That was in the trailer for Five Nights yeah. at Freddy's. This is from the people who brought you Megan. And I was right, like, wow, well, I, I didn't realize. I know, but I, I'm surprised that they chose that. But I guess if, if it's the PG-13 younger demographic. That's but it's exactly like, I, what they're going for. I didn't realize that Megan had that much kind of cultural weight for for you to throw that in a trailer and people are like, oh, wow, Megan, I got to go see this. That was a huge hit and that broke through and it was big on TikTok. So I think they're trying to get that vibe. The funniest is when it's like from the studio that brought you Talladega Nights and it's like, okay, I guess, yeah, Sony 
is also releasing this comedy. But like Sony releases 20 movies a year, all genres. Like, are we saying that like the branding of Sony Pictures is so meaningful that you're going to put it in an ad that this is the studio that brought you? It's like Warner's used to do that. The studio that brought you The Hangover has a new comedy that is just as hilarious. It's like, uh, Warner's is not particularly known for comedies. It's, you know, it releases dozens of movies a year. But okay, great. If you want to advertise it, go for it. I like it when they when they refer to the director as like the from the twisted mind of right. and then they name it director. Yeah, Dizzy did that on A Wrinkle in Time, I remember, which was from Ava DuVernay, um who's a great filmmaker, but they advertise it as like from the visionary director Ava DuVernay and I was like at the time, I think she had done like two movies, both like small indies. Selma is a great movie, but I mean, they were trying to play this up as like a big sci-fi, like, <laughs> oh, it's like Peter Jackson and Ava DuVernay. <laughs> and I was like, I uh, just love you know, it. different kinds of filmmakers. There. I love it. It's like the sound of a clock ticking and it's like from the twisted mind of Matthew Vaughn. Right. You're like, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Listen, there, there's a lot of things go over in marketing that you would never say in real life. And that's one of them. Before we go, I have one question for you. Have you heard the rumors that Taylor Swift wrote the Matthew Vaughn movie Argyle under a pen name? I am aware of those rumors. I do not believe them for one second. I think her fans are crazy and have concocted this out of thin air. I do know that she does want to be a film writer-director. She has a deal with Searchlight that's been reported, and she's supposed to direct a movie for them after the Eras tour is over. But there are some suspicious things. She was spotted with Sean Levy, the filmmaker, who's a producer on this, right? And mm-hmm. she... oh, I don't. I actually don't know if he's a producer on this. I think she was just spotted with him, and Swifties took that as, oh, look, she's with a Hollywood person. What? Maybe he has another connection to her. Then, like Sean Levy knows a lot of people. Sean, I know you listen to this. Tell us what your connection to Taylor Swift is. Email me, please. There's just a lot of rumors about this Instagram account of the person who wrote the story, Emmy Conway. Oh, right. She's anonymous and she follows Taylor Swift. And there's things. Her first post is on December 13th, Taylor Swift's birthday. Right. And Taylor said something with Conway in it at one of the tours. There's no photos of Conway in any of her posts. I did send that story yesterday to someone at Universal Pictures, which is releasing the film. And this is a chatty person that typically responds, and it was silence. <laughs> I kind of so maybe, maybe we are fueling that rumor today. Yeah. I, whatever, fine. I'm all for it. It's a fun rumor. I'm kind of with it. Maybe I've been like red pilled by the Taylor Swifties. We have now been trained to believe that everything is marketing with her, and yeah. that she can't have an authentic moment, and there can't be any coincidences. So maybe this is just a coincidence. An incredible marketing ploy by Argyle, if so. Yeah, maybe the real writer is Travis Kelsey. I think he probably wrote it and and is secretly directing it. I highly doubt that. (laughs) He and his brother. Uh, All right, that's the show. I guess uh, I want to thank my guest, me. And I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, Jesse Lopez, our editor. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.